Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sabinan. I am the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University, and I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. We have new episodes dropping every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Today we have once again co-host Arthur Wolchinski, formerly of a bunch of different government agencies, but last communication security establishment. He will often say that his remarks do not reflect that of that agency or any other agency. You can infer from that what you will. Arthur, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing, Steve? It's good to be here again. Uh, I'm doing good. I just came back from California. I got to visit my daughter. It was the first time we'd seen her in her environment in four years. Uh, she's been back east, but first time to meet her cat, see her new apartment, meet her roommate. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, we got to see oh. gardens. We got to see the Getty Museum. We went to Disneyland, which is indeed the happiest place on earth. And hard <laughs> to tell there's a pandemic going on because it was lots and lots and lots and lots of people. Well, you know, it's good to have that kind of, of, of mental break and engage with family and do and do fun things because there's a lot of stuff happening on the planet that's that's occupying a lot of people's time that isn't quite in that happy zone. Not the happiest place on earth, I think, in various parts of the world. So which makes you less happy, pipelines bursting or the rattling of nuclear sabers? They're both bad. I mean, I'm like the, the pipelines bursting for me was a deeply troubling development. For me, what showed just how serious that issue was, was the, the reaction of my former friends where I was posted, the Norwegians, I don't know if you saw, reacted quite severely to, uh, to that development. They deployed their, uh, their assets, particularly their, their new um, F-35s over their energy producing assets in the Norwegian Sea. NATO issued a statement. I mean, this is some serious stuff around what I perceive as, as, as Russia testing how far it can push the West. And uh, you know, never mind the, the actual damage to, to Nord Stream, the damage to the environment because of all of the gas that was released. This was uh, an act that was maybe in international waters, but cut really close to the quick in terms of being an attack on critical infrastructure mm-hmm. in, uh, in NATO territory. And so for me, that was deeply, deeply concerning. Yes, I mean, the, this is so multifaceted that you mentioned the environmental damage. We're living in a time where we would like to minimize uh, the gases that we spew. And this is obviously methane is not good for the planet, that this seems to be pretty clearly Russian. I, I, I don't think anybody's really seriously thinking that it's anybody else these days. I mean, I, I was on the, the radio that day and I was being asked about it. And I, I couldn't really speak to it because we don't really know that much about what's going on here. It is about Russia flexing muscles and exerting itself. But if, if the Russians want to make sure that Europe becomes independent from Russia energy, they couldn't be doing it more enthusiastically enough. I mean, the, I, who's going to be dependent on the Russians in five years for any kind of fuel? I, I just can't imagine. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see anybody in Europe wanting to be dependent on, on, on the Russians from an energy perspective. But that's why this for me was so concerning was because I don't think that the Russians are necessarily looking ahead in terms of even their own energy markets for this. I think this was very much them pushing the West 
and, and testing NATO's limits. And for me, this, you know, you mentioned, you know, which, which worries me more, the nuclear saber rattling or the attack on the uh, energy infrastructure. For me, this is all part of a, a setting of the table, if you will. By, uh, by the Russians around setting a, a strategic context that is a narrative both domestically but also for international audiences. So for me, the, the gas pipeline, the uh, Putin speech talking about the, the accession following those sham referenda in eastern Ukraine, the, uh, of the easternmost regions of Ukraine into uh, into legislative validation of that, uh, of that illegal activity and the nuclear saber rattling all together. Uh, with the call-up uh, of, of, of troops is, is again, Putin setting context and testing limits to see how far he, he, can, he can go because he is profoundly committed to an end state which sees those eastern provinces of Ukraine thoroughly integrated into, into Russia. And I'm really worried that he is going to miscalculate how much the West is willing to take and things like, for example, the, the cutting of gas pipelines, what does that say about other critical infrastructure that may be vulnerable? What is it going to say about, for example, transatlantic communi- telecommunications mm-hmm. uh, uh, cables? Uh, are they going to be cut? Uh, you know, what is, what is the line that he's willing to cross and what are the possible responses? And I think that there's been a lot of dumb action on the part of the, uh, of Putin and his enablers, but I'm, I'm also concerned about some of the reaction from folks on, on the other side of the equation as well. Let me push back for a second. I think all this is worrying. I, I don't want to say it's not worrying, but what's interesting is the lines that Putin is not crossing and that these things are very clearly on one side of the line. So, for instance, with uh, Nord Stream, he attacked his own pipeline, essentially. The, while it is critical infrastructure, it was not a hunk of Norwegian infrastructure. It was not a hunk of Danish infrastructure. And so it was not clearly an attack upon NATO countries. And, f- and for this entire war since February, Putin has not attacked uh, conventionally or even semi-unconventionally. I mean, cyber attacks are something else entirely. But we haven't seen any violent attack on any NATO country, despite the fact that NATO has been arming the Ukrainians and to the teeth. I think that's a fundamental line. And I think that, that this is why I think that he's trying to get as close to that line without crossing it as possible. It's why NATO, the NATO Council actually did issue a statement about that gas mm. infrastructure, because they were very clearly articulating a, a line for NATO around defending mm. NATO critical infrastructure. So you're right. He hasn't crossed it. But that's and, he's he's kind of testing the parameters of it to see how far he can how far he can go. Well, one one way is to say that he's testing the parameters. Another is that he's trying to do as much stuff as possible in acts of desperation without crossing lines. So is is a, is he trying to push the lines outwards, or is he operating within the space base he's got? So for the nuclear saber rattling, for instance, he was making nuclear threats at the outset of this conflict, and now people are more worried now because yes, it. it the situation the Russians are facing are desperate. As we take this on Tuesday, October 4th, we now see the Ukrainians taking more and more territory. And so what is Russia doing with its nuclear weapons? And all intelligence reports that have been leaked or discussed has indicated nothing has changed. There's been no deployment of Russian nuclear weapons to suggest that that there's actual real preparations. So this is more of him talking and not doing, which is very the way we prefer it to the alternative. And then there's the mobilization thing, mobilizing the uh, semi-mobilizing, partial mobilizing the Russians, uh, people 
was a bad idea and has been very costly to Putin, not so much to the Ukrainians, because now the Ukrainians are just capturing people faster. They've had people who are ill-equipped, untrained, show up on the battlefield, and they surrender faster than the other Russians. And so the, the challenge it poses for the Ukrainians is more of where to put these people. I agree with what you're, what you're saying there, but I think that uh, the question will be, what is Putin's reaction going to be as mm -hmm. more and more of his of his of the people that he's sending into the uh, to the front get captured and killed? Mm -hmm. What's going to happen? Like, how is he going to react after he has done this massive political in investment dom domestically mm -hmm. into the into the drama of of saving the Russian parts, quote unquote, uh, of Ukraine? If he continues to lose, you know, huge numbers of soldiers, equipment and territory to the Ukrainians. I think that he is painting himself into a thorough corner. And uh, again, given his, the miscalculations that he has made in the past uh, around Western response, around the effectiveness of, of Ukrainian resistance, uh, I'm worried that he will make that ultimate miscalculation that will cost people's lives. I'm not saying that, that it's a for sure, but I'm quite worried that his options in terms of what he can put on the table to address what's going to be a, a humiliation in the face of his own domestic audience. He doesn't have that many options left. And some of the rhetoric that he's been using has, has been really deeply concerning. It reaches deep to the ethos and culture and uh, of, of Russians' perceptions of themselves around being victimized historically by the West, around how this is a proxy fight uh, that Russia is waging for its own, own existence. And that taps into a, a, a real vein of Russian anxiety about their own situation in the world. Not that Putin, I think, is just a vector for in terms of amplifying. So this well, is where I'm, that's where I'm worried is that the Ukrainians are going to be very, very successful and that uh, that Putin's going to perceive that he doesn't have an option. Well, I guess the thing I, I push back on is that uh, there have been polls this past week showing that the Russian people are actually okay with not holding on to this territory. And so there is room, whether Putin wants to see it or not, there is room for him to backtrack on this, that he would not be the first autocrat to start a war and then lose the war and stay in power. And so he should be reading Milosevic's playbook and Hussein's playbook and other, other folks to figure out how to claim victory or how to blame the loss to others. But he's not the only actor in the society. Uh, there are other forces out there that may decide that he might be the scapegoat for the war, that the way to way to lose this war properly, or the way to end this war, is, is to push him out of power and say that it was his mistakes. And, and while that they still would, in the future, would love to have Ukraine part of Russia, it's not going to happen now because of... of Putin's mistakes. I think Putin's domestic political problems are going to be quite challenging to him. And I don't think nuking Ukraine is going to be a way to to get him out of that particular uh, challenge. But we have other stuff to get to on a completely different topic. Uh, I have no good segue for this. One of the conversations the past two weeks in Ottawa has been domestic emergency operations. Yeah. That with uh, Hurricane Fiona doing so much damage to the east and the CAF sending so many troops out east to deal with it. There's been a renewal of the conversation about should we have some alternative to the military because the military is being strained by this. I've been in the media talking about this. I was just on a radio program this morning. So I'm curious to 
hear what you have to say about how does Canada handle domestic emergency operations? What's the role of the military in all of this? Well, I think that's a it's a it's a really challenging question. And I, I listened into the the conversation you had with uh, some friends and colleagues, and I think it was a it was a really compelling one and an interesting one. The reality is is that the CAF has always and will continue to be called upon domestically to respond in times of crisis, it, and those domestic crises are increasingly going to be linked to to climate change. There's there's no getting around that. I think politically, it is untenable for any government to not have something that it can immediately put into a an emergency situation like a fire like uh, hospitals like floods like responses to what happened in uh, uh, with regards to hurricane fiona it just it's it's not tenable my concern is with all those who are advocating that we need to create some kind of new uh, infrastructure to to do this is that a few things one it'll take time Actually, uh, negotiating a framework in a you know fractious a federation as we are right now that recognizes the complexity of emergency response in a federation is not an easy task. So just divvying up who does what in that kind of environment, it's really hard to do. Number two, it's expensive. Uh, putting up uh, something like that, that, that's standing it up from scratch, making sure it has the capacity, the training, the experience, the leadership necessary to respond in, in those kinds of situations. And thirdly, I think it would have a uh, compounding uh, negative effect on CAF's ability to recruit. You're fishing in the same pond for the same type of folks with similar skill sets and interests who would be effective in fire response and emergency response as you would in terms of recruitment for uh, for the CAF. So the CAF's already down 10,000 folks from where it's supposed to be. You add another agency that's going to be competing with them in this tight labor market for uh, for skills. And I think that we're going to have the potential of having two ineffective competing entities with overlapping mandates. I'm much more inclined to more fully embrace the emergency response role for uh, for CAF, make it a clear, a central part of their, their mandate. Uh, and in fact, I think it would be a really good way for CAF to attract people who want to, uh, quite frankly, be more engaged in terms of helping their neighbors than they might be in, in, in the adventures of, of, of going somewhere far afield to, to engage in, in traditional military roles. I think you raised something really important, which is given the scarce labor market, creating a new agency doesn't make sense because it would probably compete with the CAF. I, I also come down to this that that if we can't get the pro- federal government and the provinces to agree to manage just data about vaccines, how are we to get the, them to work out a new relationship with a new agency? So I just don't think it is a starter. The The challenge right now, of course, as I, as I mentioned uh, on the radio, is right now the provinces have it really, really great because they don't have to pay for emergency operations that are conducted by the military. Technically, the, the military can issue a check the minister can make them pay, but that's politically impossible. And so the provinces have very little incentive to invest in emergency preparedness, particularly in, in uh, like a like provincial version of FEMA, uh, where they have a standing by force for this. I guess one of the things that's interesting to me as an American in Canada is when I first moved here, I come in hearing people saying, well, you know, if we don't have the military do something, people aren't going to support funding it. And I wonder if there's that also that same hesitancy where to have a, a truly successful emergency management agency, it needs to have surplus labor that they can then throw at an emergency. They can't. They have to be able to be 
deployable, which means that when there's no emergencies, they're not really doing a whole lot besides usual training and, and things like that. And it may be that there's not enough public support for having an agency that's not active and engaged in doing something every single day. And and that goes to sort of strange things that Canadians aren't willing to pay for, like a decent place for the prime minister to live. You know, annoy, they get annoyed when we spend a little money on airplanes for the for the prime minister and other folks. And so I think this penny pinching has has um, negative consequences for all kinds of things. Uh, what you're pointing to is that Canada hasn't really invested as much as it should in emergency preparedness and in the resilience that's required of our communities to withstand various kinds of, of shocks to the system, whether or not they're climate-induced or, or terrorism or military, we just don't have that kind of resilience built into our governance structures and into the resources that we've built to support Canadians in, those, in that crisis. And part of it is cost, but part of it is also the complexity of our, of our governance and who does, uh, who does what. So I'm particularly mindful that in a country as big as Canada's, with population as as widely you know uh, spread out as it is, having a provincially or even you know capability that is at the scale it needs to be to respond to some of these uh, you know catastrophes is just not realistic. You know, a small community like you know Porto Basque in in uh, in Newfoundland, you know, you might have a, a fairly robust local ability. But the scale, scope and scale of that of that disaster is so huge that it, it does require, I think, a, a national response. You know, and I think that given some of the of our just geographic challenges, we need to be able to muster a critical mass of, of capable individuals with the right gear and the right training to be able to step into the breach. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, a, that a, a, a force of a certain size that whose primary function is this disaster response. And I, I heard at the radio, you, you know, we folks uh, spoke about the DART in terms of international deployments, but having that an even more compelling component of their domestic mandate would be effective in moving from the, for example, the fires out West to the, the flooding in Manitoba uh, to, you know, ice storms in Toronto through to hurricane response in, in Atlanta, Canada. And I think that, that again, creating it from scratch is just not uh, not feasible. But I'd also think that, that developing a CAF capability where this is more central will be something that's also useful. If you can, for example, Canada can contribute to international cooperation by having a more in this space and sending people more regularly into, into an international environment that is more precarious from a climate perspective so that we can respond. I actually think it, it might be a particular capability that we have that, that is useful at the global level. Whenever I hear the, these conversations, it's been, always been the case that domestic emergency response has been one of the four main priorities of the Canadian Armed Forces. The, the challenge has been that it's always been fourth and always a distant fourth. And the way the CAF is incentivized, the way it's designed, discourages people from putting more effort into it. That if you go on a far deployment, you get time off when you get back. When you go to domestic deployment, you go back to work the next day. I'm not sure how much promotion works these days to make it to that that people are rewarded for successful domestic operations. You know, the way it was put together on the radio this morning was sort of like, do you want them to fight or not? And it's like, we need to think about the terms that the military uses. And there's something you talked about before we started taping, which is risk mitigation. What are the relative risks that we're facing? Are we at risk right now of sending off 3,000 soldiers to fight in a place like Afghanistan? And the answer is no, because no. no politician wants to be involved in it in Afghanistan, you know, for the time being. We've learned that lesson. We'll forget it in time, but we've learned that lesson for now. So the next 10 years, what is going to be our focus? Is it going to be training for counterinsurgency operations? No. 
Is it going to be actually fighting the Russians? Mm, no, probably not, because the Russians have shown they can't beat the Ukrainians. They're not going to get further than that. While we do need to train to have our, our soldiers prepared to respond to an attack upon Latvia, that is not the highest risk we face right now. The highest risk we face right now are things like pandemics, floods, and all the rest. And so it shouldn't be necessarily that domestic emergency operations become more important than the the away mission, but that should become pretty close to being as important. We've lost far more Canadians to emergencies at home than we have to the wars abroad over the past 20 years. Um, Com completely. And I, I think that that uh, one of the, the challenges I think that we have in a conversation about, uh, about the military is that we often look backward at, at fights we've had as a means of determining what our capabilities and our posture should be, opposed to looking at what are the appropriate uses of a, of a Canadian Armed Forces to mitigate the risks that are in front of us into the future. And, you know, right now, I'm not sure that we're well positioned to do either the international deployments particularly effectively or the domestic response particularly effectively, because we're, you know, we, we, we haven't, I think, had that profound and deep conversation about our, our, our place yeah, in the world. And therefore, how do we use power that we have as limited uh, yet as effective as it is to achieve those policy objectives? I mean, one you, you talked about, you know, we're not likely to fight the, the Russians anytime soon. And I, I agree with you. But one of the things that I found interesting, and I don't know if you saw this as well, but in an interview, uh, the foreign minister, Melanie Jolie, that she supports Ukraine's quote unquote, uh, accelerated <laughs> application to join NATO. That was, I mean, I, I was quite frankly shocked at the silence with which that, that pronouncement was, was met with. Oh, you know, this, please. I mean, I know uh, this is the thing is like, it's completely ludicrous. If we, if we agreed with her, with her premise, Canada would be in a hot war instantly. No, and but the, the joy of it is we're Canada. We're one of 30 countries. So we can say this because we got a large Ukrainian Canadian Canadian population and maybe but that must right drive our allies insane i mean like no, you know. yeah, but they look at us and they go okay canada says this but they you know it's for domestic political purposes and and we're not gonna get consensus on on ukraine joining nato so if the, the joy of of the nato decision-making procedure of consensus means that canada can say whatever it wants to on creating membership of nato and it matters not at all so the reason why jolie's announcement didn't make anybody bounce this kind of thing is like, ah, oh, Canada's doing that, but, you know, it's not going to move the needle. It's, you know, if the United States said we're going to, you know, support Zelensky's new application to fast track, which is not a thing, uh, into NATO, and the Germans and the French say, yeah, okay, we're going to do it, then then things happen, but... No, 100%. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I, I know that our, the way that we're perceived internationally is that Canada does what Canada does to play to its domestic constituency there. But even like, you know, the conversation that we were having earlier about the role of the CAF, I think that that this is precisely an example of why we need to have a more robust conversation about what do Canadians want from its military? How are we going to you know, equip it, recruit for it, train it and deploy it in order to respond to Canada's political directions and interests? And I think that that the lack of even a domestic conversation about people going, say what? After Jolie said, yeah, let's let's have, uh, you know, a country in a hot war immediately join NATO, that it was kind of shrugged even domestically. I'm not sure that, that, that that's a reflection of a mature domestic political conversation about either security or foreign affairs. That's uh, a recurring theme. Uh... <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's lamentable, I think. I mean, like we're, we're a G7 country. We are we keep on saying that we want an international rules based uh, based order. 
But then we 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 just provide, I think, lip service uh, to you know how to then pursue it, and it, it, it's something that's ad hoc and not not framed through a clear-eyed evaluation of what's in our national interests, what are the outcomes that we want to see, and how are we going to get there. And uh, I really hope some at some point within my lifetime we sit down again and have that kind of conversation with uh, with serious folks. Speaking of serious folks, the women of Iran seem very serious this week, and. Of course, the response to Canada is, what does it mean to us? How can we make a difference there? And I think the answer is we can't make much of a difference there. This is up for the Iranian people. But I believe that the Iranian files crossed your desk in various places. So what's what's your take on on, on the situation? Well, first of all, you know, I think that one one has to recognize the absolute courage of, of people like Masa Amini, the woman who was uh, who, who was killed. Uh, as a function of of her trying to exercise her her, her freedom, and and now the 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 thousands upon thousands of of, of Iranian women who are, are are taking to the streets uh, to protest against um, you know the the mullah's theocratic rule. This is a, another spasm uh, within the Islamic Republic. I mean, th- th- these things seem to happen uh, for years. And to be blunt, I'm I don't know. If what is happening today uh, on the streets of Tehran and Isfahan and across across Iran actually pose an existential threat to the mullahs. But it is interesting from my perspective that the Supreme Leader Khamenei felt it important enough to issue a public statement and talk about uh, you know, his sympathy with uh, Masa Amini and her family. But at this, in the same breath, turned around and basically identified the protesters as being proxies for the U.S. and Israel. So for me, that that's a, a dangerous sign in terms of how they're going to to respond. But I think that that Khamenei's entrance into the into the conversation, I think, says a lot about their concern about what's going on. You know, in terms of Canada's response, you know, you're right. I'm not sure what you know what what's more on the table. I mean, we already you know have declared Iran a state sponsor of terror. There's been a lot of conversation about listing of the IRGC, but the reality is that the Quds Force of the IRGC is already a listed terrorist entity. So the questions are: What are the tools that we have in in our toolkit within Canada to further isolate the regime in Iran, to encourage human rights and respect for international rules-based uh, order, and actually uh, put some teeth into some of the measures that we've announced, such as sanctions. You raise a really good point, Arthur, which is ultimately when you sanction a country a lot, it doesn't you don't have a lot of tools left in the toolbox. So there's limited leverage we have. And I guess my plea for this and the other uh, and the Ukrainian membership, the NATO thing, is a plea for uh, humility about how much we can move the needle on things. And the question really about our foreign policy is I, I do think we probably need a foreign policy review, essentially just to figure out where we can use our limited leverage rather than just shooting all over the place. What are our priorities and where to spend it? Uh, our capital, just like with the military. We have a lot of different priorities, but what should get our most of our attention? What should get more of our attention? What, how do we mitigate risks in the world? And so I think with the, the Iran situation, we should absolutely speak out. We should definitely be on the side of the of these women, although it's ironic that the flip side of this freedom is that we're imposing restrictions on the ability to wear hijab in Quebec. So I'm not sure that Canada has the best leg to stand on at this moment in time, given what Quebec has done with it. Um, oh, yeah, no, 100% agree. I mean, I think that there needs to be a freedom for, for, for women to make the choice to wear it or not to wear it. But I, I think that the the, uh, the hijab in, in Iran is a proxy for 
all kinds of other yeah, restrictions sure. around 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 society and and and, uh, and freedom. And uh, you know what's what's I think what's interesting in terms of the the conversation about what's happening in Iran and what's happening in Ukraine is the extent to which Iranian and Ukrainian diasporas in Canada are a uh, a driving force for Canada's foreign policy in this. I'm not saying that that's that's wrong, but I think that the reality is that um, you know Canadian politicians particularly uh, are, are particularly sensitive to how an issue is is perceived within domestic context and uh, both the Iranian and the Ukrainian communities are rightly enraged by what's happening uh, in their uh, in their countries of, of origin and their countries of, of ancestry and are calling on on Canada to take fairly significant positions on that and so rhetorically we do but then we become there's a disconnect between our our rhetoric and our actual capability and the toolbox that we have to affect real change in any of these of these cases. So we do what we can, but I think our bark is a whole lot um, louder and stronger than our bite. Yeah, well, I think that that is a good theme to, for us to finish on is just a, an awareness of our limitations. <laughs> And always a pleasure to talk to you, Arthur. We do have an interview coming up with somebody who's experienced the frontiers of, of Canadian capability. That is Lieutenant Colonel Gilbert, who or led the training mission in Ukraine up until the shooting started, essentially. And so we talked to him about his experience uh, and the redeployment that they had to go through and and what they what we've learned from the Ukrainians since these days, the Ukrainians are the experts on war, as they've shown quite ably how to fight intelligently, coherently cohesively and creatively. So Arthur, thank you again for your expertise. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Find some time in your retirement to do some fun stuff like go to Disneyland. Uh, looking forward to it. All right. Take care. Take care. Today on Battle Rhythm, we have Lieutenant Colonel Luke Frederick Gilbert, who led Operation Unifier fairly recently. He has much experience uh, with the training of the Ukrainian army, and we thought we'd have him on to talk about what he experienced and his reflections on what, how the Ukrainians are performing. We're taping this on September 9th, 2022, and the news of the day is that the Ukrainians have seized a fair amount of territory in their counteroffensives. So uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Lieutenant Colonel. So when did you lead Operation Unifier? So uh, I was in in uh, Ukraine from September until uh, until the invasion. So uh, September 21 until uh, mid-February when we had to leave uh, for Poland this time. Yeah. I guess the first question then is, is how did that work? I mean, in terms of when did you leave and how long did you stay in, in the nearby region and what were your reactions to the sudden change of plans? I would say it was a surprise, but it was not a surprise that uh, yeah. that, that we had to uh, to leave in, uh, uh, in an early fashion. Obviously, we were tracking the situation on the ground since day one. We saw a buildup from September until uh, until January, when uh, really in uh, end of January, Russian forces at the border of uh, of Belarus and and Ukraine were to a summit in in, uh, in numbers. We were looking at 125,000 approximately at that time, which uh, if you recall the year before, there were some discussion and, and some, um, I don't want to say panic, it was not a panic, but I mean, it was definitely some reflection on the fact that uh, there were 90,000 soldiers on the border and in April 21 was, uh, was a moment when uh, people got worried about, uh, about what was going on. When we arrived in September, 
there was already 90,000 troops uh, along the border. And that number stayed, uh, stayed still for about a month, a month and a half. But in December, it started to grow until uh, it reached, uh, as I mentioned, uh, about uh, 125,000 uh, in, uh, in January. So at that time, we knew something was coming. And then, of course, we had other indicators I cannot discuss. But there were some obvious signs that something was going on uh, on the military side. So we made a decision in early Feb, late January to, uh, to shuffle the, our forces. So what I did at the time was to uh, remove my training uh, folks from some, from some cities and, and centralize in, in Kyiv. And, and then we had to move out of Kyiv as well, because as we all witnessed in the early stage of the invasion, Kyiv was, was the key target. So we moved out of the country and, and we relocated to Poland. Actually, on Valentine's Day, we did the move to Poland. We stayed in Poland for about uh, a bit more than a month because we were, at that time, monitoring the situation, trying to obviously repatriate all our equipment and all that. And also, we were there ready to support, basically provide any help we could have provided at the time, which turns out that it, we were not required. And after a month, uh, we realized that, okay, that this, this is it. Like, we, we are putting up Unifart on a, on a tactical pause. It was a really dynamic situation starting after Christmas, and that led to us uh, leaving uh, leaving Ukraine. Yeah. And so, what kinds of training were you doing? So, um, we had uh, six training groups. Uh, so, uh, individual training was uh, was one of them, which uh, we were teaching uh, snipers uh, and recce. Recce being a reconnaissance, so basically scouts. Also, uh, the professional military education, which is looking in the long term, looking into a.